This can be a complex topic. And the reason it's complex is not necessarily because, I'll say, let me rephrase that. It's not because scripture has different narratives. It is because we have so many competing narratives in our culture on this, both from the left and the right, that those in the middle, this is hard to kind of break down. You have leftists who, who, be, who believe in almost absolute freedom, and you have some on the far right who would hold to this place that women are subordinate to men in all areas. And again, we don't, we don't worship a donkey or a elephant. We worship the lamb. So we have to be in this beautiful middle area that seeks true freedom for all people. So this is where I leave you with tonight. For those of you in high school, you're going to deal with this a lot more than those of you that are in junior high. But junior high, this is a good primer for you to be aware of. Um, fact is, the discussion on gender and sexuality were complex. It was before we moved into the Freudian age. And I'll explain what I mean by Freudian age in a couple of weeks. And it was complex before because people use scripture to subjugate women to their own desires and needs. We cannot deny that. And today we use scripture to free women and men. The question, though, is we free them to what, right? So it's a movie trope. I actually love this movie trope. I think it's very funny. You've all seen it. It's where you're in a dream, right? And you're suddenly being chased by some sort of creature. I'll let you imagine the creature. You probably know this creature because it's haunted your dreams for a very long time. I'm well aware of it, right? And you spend most of the dream, or in the movie, or in the TV show, they're trying to get away from this creature. If it's a comedy, it's very comical for the next five minutes as they try to run away from this creature. If it's a horror film, people are getting slayed left and right, right? And this is how the dream is played out. And finally, at some point in the running away from the monster, you realize, it's a dream. I can wake myself up. And so you now spend the next five minutes, again, whether it's a comedy or if it's a horror film, trying to wake yourself up. And suddenly, you are wide awake in your own bed, right? Okay. It's just a dream. I need milk, which is what I need when I need comfort. It's something about, I'm sure it's LinkedIn. Freud would say something to do with me needing a baby and baby needing milk. So I head downstairs into the kitchen and all is peaceful. And I open the fridge door and what awaits me is that monster from the first dream. And you realize I'm in a dream in a dream. And that's the movie trope. And then right, cut to black, show's over, TV show's over. And that's the trope, right? And when we talk about freedom in sexuality... We have really, for a good portion of the history of the world, women have been subjugated and scripture has been used to dominate over them. And the left in the sexual revolution in the 60s tried to free us from sexual constraints. But I fear that we have woken up in a dream where we think we're going downstairs for milk only to find that the monster is still waiting for us in the kitchen. And so we as Christians, 
And in the Red Pill Project, if you understand the analogy, need to wake up to a biblical reality of what it means to be free in our gender and in our sexuality. And so we have to ask the question, where, where are we free in this? So our discussion on sex and gender starts with Scripture, as most things should. Think about it. If God wanted to make us asexual and we just reproduce on our own when we feel like it, he could have. There are creatures on the planet that do that, right? Mini AJ, it's just appeared. I had a feeling. I was moved by the spirit, right? But he didn't. He didn't do that. We didn't create us with single family unit with a small clone. He did, however, make us male and female to complement one another. It's all about complement. Think about it. God is not a single entity. What I mean by that is God is simple, but he is three persons, right, in one. And what do they do? The God of love could not make people in his own image if he did not make people that complemented each other, or at least two people. Because the God of love is the God of love because the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Spirit and the Spirit loves the Father and the Father loves the Spirit and the Spirit loves the Son. That's why we can say God is love because he is one God in three persons. And so he creates us in unity with one another. So, what do you think God means... By, so, sorry, sorry. So in Genesis 2, God gave man a helper. God gave man a helper. So what do you think God means by helper? This is where you talk. Be a lot more. What do you think God means by helper? Anybody over here? I hear words. Anything? What do you think God means by helper? This is not a complex question. Thank you so much. It's someone who helped. It's someone who helped every time. That's a helper. I'm smart, guys. I'm very smart. I reuse words in my definition. Okay, what do you think God means by helper? Do you think it's subordinate? Do you think the helper's the one in charge? Not Taylor, because Taylor's brilliant. Anybody who's not smart like Taylor. <laughs> David, David immediately raised his hand. Hey, Riley, you're a mini Taylor, right? Mr. Riley's like, no, don't put that pressure on me. So what do you think helper means? When you think of helper, what's the first thing that comes to mind? It can be analogous. What is the first thing that comes to mind when you think of helper? Excellent. So someone who you go to in times of crisis. Times of crisis. Silas, what do you think when you think of the word helper? Um, a guide. A guide. Right. That's good. I like it. A guide is a helper. If I'm lost in the woods, I want a helper. Right? Anybody else? Taylor. Okay, so you gave me a great book called Becoming Eve, and in the book they talk about the Holy Spirit is our helper, and that's what I think of when I think of helper. Excellent, very good. Um, so follow up, how does the term helper 
in our cultural setting potentially tear down women? How does that phrase potentially tear down women? Deborah. So helper speaks against our cultural's obsession with independence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think that's good. What else? What does helper imply? Chloe? Belittlement. Belittlement. It's interesting, right? Well, you're just you're a good little helper. Here's cool. Here's what the Bible says about helper. It's your first fill in the blank. The word helper is overwhelmingly applied to God himself in the scripture. The word helper is overwhelmingly applied to God himself in the scripture. So when God calls Eve Adam's helper in Genesis 2... He is not thinking of it or saying it in a derogatory term, but he is actually placing a crown on Eve as he compares her to himself. That is countercultural, but that is what the Bible says. One serving the other, just as the other serves the one. It is a reflection of God's love It is, you could argue, the basis of pure intimacy. But Genesis 3 destroys that beauty. Sin comes in and intimacy is replaced by shame and blame, right? What unites God's people now puts them at odds with one another. And this is where we find the misuse played out in Scripture. Now, hear this. Now, the Old Testament doesn't always endorse, but it does report And if you've moved from the children's Bible version of Scripture and I've started to read from Genesis on, you'll see Genesis on is pretty R-rated. They don't leave anything out. If you are reading your Old Testament, there should be moments where you will blush and where you are uncomfortable. I'm a 34-year-old man. There are still moments that I move through that I'm like, God, why did you put that in there? Why do I got to deal with that? I know you said all scripture is used for, you know, teaching, rebuking, training up in righteousness. But I don't know how to use a drunk man sleeping with his daughters-in-laws to preach the gospel. And that's early on. It's not like a couple, like, books in. That's like, bam, first couple chapters. Whoa, whoa. I'm really uncomfortable with this. Right? But it's in our face immediately. And if you realize that there is abuse, murder, rape, and the exploitation of women, Noah onward. And it's bad, y'all. It's bad. But it exists to show us the contrast of how things ought to be. It exists to show us the contrast of how things ought to be. You see, the God of the Bible is always seen as the husband seeking his bride. And even when she is rebellious, which if you've read the Old Testament, is a pretty regular occurrence. But does that mean... That all women are rebellious. 
Of course, yes. It means all women are rebellious, just like you men. All of us are rebellious. Every single one of us are rebellious. Yes, just as men are. And when you put rebellious people in relationship with one another, things fall apart. But then the bridegroom comes. I asked the very beginning for you to write down some interactions Jesus had with various women in the Gospels. What did it say about Jesus? So what I want you to do right now, we've not done this in a while, is I want you to break up into groups of three or four, make sure no one's left out, break up into groups of three or four, and discuss what you have written down. Break into groups of three or four and share with one another what you wrote down, what you wrote down. What's the most common type of stories you get in your group? Deborah, you can join the boys, and Sarah Ann, you can join the boys behind you, or join into Silas and um, Taylor right here. Three or four, try to keep it to three or four, maybe five. I'm going to ask, select one kind of spokesperson for your group. I want to know the most common one from your group, common one from your group. Knox has got it, the right idea. He's like, I'm getting mine out of the way, so mine's not taken. Yeah, Knox, what was the most common story about Jesus' interaction with women in your group? We actually all wrote the woman at the well. Woman at the well? It's one of my favorite ones. I love the well women. Women drink water. True story. Yes. Okay, we did um, the beggar woman who was, uh, had, who, yeah, she had an illness for 12 years. Yes. It's gone. What did you, what did you have? Mary and Martha. I like Mary and Martha. It does sound like a TLC show I always felt like, right? Mary and Martha on TLC. <laughs> One listens the whole time, and the other one cleans the kitchen. It's called, it's called the view. It's called the view. No, it's not. What did you guys have? Woman at the well. Woman at the well. Wait, get another one. Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. Okay. I, um, back here, guys and man. Woman at the well. Oh, my. Oh, she cleaned his feet. That one's always the most moving to me, where you have the woman comes and the prostitute who cleans Jesus' feet. Um, think about it. What does, give me a breakdown. Y'all you, you said women at the well. What is so crazy? Let's just focus on it. What's so countercultural about that incident? About what incident? Women at the well. That the woman was a Sumerian and the Jews didn't talk to the Sumerian people. Okay, so there's immediately a cultural difference, right? Like, she's from the other side of the tracks. She's from Samaria. What else? Plus, um, other than, like, Jews and all that, uh, women were, like, not as important as men. Okay. So why, So what does that mean for Jesus? What, should he have interacted with her? No. No. What? It's a woman. You're not supposed to be alone with another woman that's not your spouse, right? And that's still that way in modern culture in... Um, India, right? Or in the Middle East. If you were at the um, one conference when we did Rise Up, she gave her testimony. Women and men will, if they have a party, eat separately, right? Okay? So he's counterculture there. Where else was it different for the woman at the well? She was, they're trying to be considered worthless because she had, what, seven husbands? Yeah. So she was like... She did not have a good reputation, right? 
like there are names for her that the Jews and the Samaritans use that I can't repeat here in, in worry of losing my job, right? So it's bad, but Jesus speaks into all that. So I want you to hear this, okay? Hey, focus, focus, focus. Jesus's, Rebecca McLaughlin, who I'm pulling a lot from her book, Confronting Christianity, she says, Jesus' valuing of women is unmistakable. In a culture in which women were devalued and often exploited, it underscores their equal status before God and his desire for a personal relationship with them. We're going to be going through the Gospel of Luke in the fall, and you're going to see over and over and over again how Jesus uses women in his story of the parables. He interacts with women pretty much every other miracle. And he treats them as equals to men over and over again. It's to the point where it got him in trouble with the Pharisees. It's the beauty of the Gospel of Luke. Luke has actually been called the Gospel to Women because of how much it brings it up. First people to see the empty tomb of Jesus were? Women. First eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection? Women. And if you believe it or not, in that culture, if you are going to report something in court, you know who couldn't speak? Women. Women. But Jesus uses them as the first witness to his resurrection. There is a reason, ladies and gentlemen, I truly believe, while the majority of people in the world who are Christians are women. Because when you encounter the Jesus of the New Testament, women are held in high esteem. Right? But let's talk about the most offensive verse in Scripture. Let's go right into it. I love this one. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. Okay, Ephesians 5, we're on verse 22 through 24. I would read it to you in Greek, but that's just mean. It says the same thing. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So if Jesus seemed to elevate women, Paul here seems to subjugate women. Is the man to dominate the wife? Is she to declare fealty to her husband as to a, uh, a, a lord? And isn't it just here where it isn't it just here where it says it, right? Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3, all say the same thing. So are we to elevate the red letters of the Bible over the rest, as many progressives in Christianity do? Do we say, well, this is just Paul, and Paul doesn't really count, which tons of people believe. Or to go back to the nightmare analogy within the nightmare analogy, the nightmare within a nightmare analogy, had first century women left a paganism or a cultural Jewish system and traded it in for a new monster in a new setting. 
The answer to this question is a resounding no. So we're heading back. We're going to link it with Genesis 1 again, okay? So I want you to keep this in mind as I speak and about the next verse. Let's look at the next verse, 525. This one's more terrifying. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave herself up for her. So in the first century context, this is the more radical verse. And I believe in a 21st century context, it is equally radical. But we unfortunately have taken the word, word love and equated it in our cultural, culture to a feeling of attraction. That's what we think love is, right? It's a feeling of attraction. We have devalued the language to read this. Husbands, as long as you're attracted to your wives, love them. I mean, that's what the culture hears when they read that, right? But how did Christ love the church? How did Christ give himself up for her? Christ loved the church by dying on a cross, by giving himself naked and bleeding to suffer for her, by putting her needs before his own, and by sacrificing everything for her. My dear sisters, would you rather have wives submit to your husbands, or would you rather have wives Love your husbands to the point of death, putting his needs above yours and sacrificing yourself for him. Sisters, would you submit to a man who would do all those things for you? Brothers, if or when you take a wife, Will you lay down your life for her? Not just in death. That's almost the easy way out. But will you die to yourself every day? Take up your cross for her good. Would you be willing to give up all your fun hobbies to sanctify her? Would you be willing to give up your reputation to make much of Christ and his bride and your bride. And if you consider marriage, boys, boys, if you consider marriage, this is what you consider. That's the weight. Which brings us back to Genesis 1 and 2. If you consider marriage to one person, you consider reflecting the imago dei. It all comes back to that. Does that mean that if you're unmarried, you do not reflect the imago dei? Absolutely not. Some of you in this room will not marry. That's the statistics. And you reflect him in, a, in the way that you submit to your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how you do it. Because married or not, you must understand this. Rebecca McLaughlin puts it perfectly. Puts it perfectly. It's your next fill in the blank. If the message of Jesus is true, no one comes to the table with rights. You enter flat on your face, male or female. And if we grasp at our right of self-determination, we must reject Jesus because he calls us to submit to him completely. Let me repeat it. If the message of Jesus is true, no one comes to the table with rights. You enter flat on your face, male or female. And if we grasp at our right of self-determination, we must reject Jesus because he calls us to submit to him completely. We submit to Christ because he has loved by sacrificing for us. And when you recognize that marriage points us 
to a much greater reality, it relieves the pressure on all those concerned. First, think about this, it depressurizes single people. We live in a world where sexual and romantic fulfillment are paraded as the ultimate good. And unfortunately, that's true in the church too. You'll go to tons of churches where it's just assumed that if you're married, you've arrived as a Christian. And that is not the case. If you're in Christ, you have arrived as a Christian, period. And for many of you tonight, because most of you I'm looking at are still single and not married, that means that you've arrived. That's beautiful. The culture tells us, though, that if you miss out on sex, you're told that you're missed out on life. But within a Christian framework, missing marriage and gaining Christ is like missing out with playing a doll with dolls and getting a child when you grow up. This is your next on the blank. When you are fully enjoying the ultimate relationship, no one will lament for the loss of the scale model. When you are fully enjoying the ultimate relationship, no one will lament the loss of the scale model. And that's what Christianity does. It points us to the ultimate model, which is Christ. And if you're single, you get to enjoy that. If you're married, you get to enjoy that. But that's the ultimate model. Second, it takes the pressure off of married people. Here's the kicker in a post-Genesis 3 world. If you will hear nothing else tonight, please hear this. Human marriage in a Genesis 3 world is designed to disappoint. It is designed to disappoint. You will literally... Being married, if you married one day, wake up and be disappointed with the person you're waking up next to because they are not meeting your expectations. Holla freaking Luya, because they're not your savior. They are, and that relationship is to point you to the ultimate relationship with the only one who satisfies. I will not be married to Corey for eternity. She is so grateful about that, you have no idea, right? She wakes up every morning and thinks, one day I will be rid of you. And I will have all of Jesus. And one day, you will be rid of me. And I, you will have all of Jesus. And we'll still hang out. She's invited to game night on the new heavens and new earth. It's going to be good. You're invited too. It's fun. It's on a big ship. It's good. Find me a new Tampa. We've talked about this already. <laughs> it's going to be great. But we'll be enjoying Christ, the ultimate reflection of why he made us man and woman. The perfect complement, the perfect helper, the perfect picture of submission by both parties of the Imago Dei. And that should give you much hope.